Chapter 9 of Babbitt 1. Babbitt was fond of his friends. He loved the importance of being host and shouting, "'Certainly you're going to have some more chicken. The idea!' And he appreciated the genius of T. Charmolundy Fink. But the vigor of the cocktails was gone, and the more he ate, the less joyful he felt. Then the amity of the dinner was destroyed by the nagging of the Swansons. In Floral Heights and the other prosperous sections of Zenith, especially in the young married set, there were many women who had nothing to do, though they had few servants, yet with gas-stoves, electric ranges and dishwashers, and vacuum-cleaners, and tiled kitchen walls. Their houses were so convenient that they had little housework, and much of their food came from bakeries and delicatessens. They had but two, one, or no children and despite the myth that the great war had made work respectable their husbands objected to their wasting time and getting a lot of crank ideas in unpaid social work and still more to their causing a rumor by earning money that they were not adequately supported they worked perhaps two hours a day and the rest of the time they ate chocolates went to the motion pictures went window shopping went in gossiping twos and threes to card parties read magazines, thought timorously of the lovers who never appeared, and accumulated a splendid restlessness, which they got rid of by nagging their husbands. The husbands nagged back. Of these naggers, the Swansons were perfect specimens. Throughout the dinner, Eddie Swanson had been complaining publicly about his wife's new frock. It was, he submitted, too short, too low, too immodestly thin, and much too expensive. He appealed to Babbitt. "'Honest, George, what do you think of that rag Luetta went and bought? Don't you think it's the limit?' "'What's eating you, Eddie? I call it a swell little dress.' "'Oh, it is, Mr. Swanson. It's a sweet frock,' Mrs. Babbitt protested. "'There, now, do you see, Smarty? You're such an authority on clothes,' Loretta raged, while the guests ruminated and peeped at her shoulders. "'It's all right now.' said Swanson. I'm authority enough so I know it was a waste of money, and it makes me tired to see you not wearing out a whole closet full of clothes you got already. I've expressed my idea about this before, and you know good and well you don't pay the least bit of attention. I have to camp on your trail to get you to do anything. There was much more of it, and they all assisted, but Babbitt, everything about him was dim except his stomach and that was a bright scarlet disturbance. "'Had too much grub. Oughtn't to eat all stuff,' he groaned, while he went on eating, while he gulped down a chill and glutinous slice of ice-cream brick and coconut cake as oozy as shaving cream. He felt as though he had been stuffed with clay. His body was bursting, his throat was bursting, his brain was hot mud, and only with agony did he continue to smile and shout as became a host of floral heights he would except for his guests have fled outdoors and walked off the intoxication of food but in the haze which filled the room they sat forever talking talking while he agonized darn fool to be eating all this not another mouthful and discovered that he was again tasting the sickly welter of melted ice cream on his plate there was no magic in his friends. He was not uplifted. When Howard Littlefield produced from his treasure house of scholarship the information that the chemical symbol for raw rubber is 
C10H16, which turns into isoprene, which is 2C5H8. Suddenly, without precedent, Babbitt was not merely bored, but admitting that he was bored. It was ecstasy to escape from the table, from the torture of a straight chair, and loll on the davenport in the living room. The others, from their fitful, unconvincing talk, their expressions of being slowly and painfully smothered, seemed to be suffering from the toil of social life and the horror of good food as much as himself. All of them accepted with relief the suggestion of bridge. Babbitt recovered from the feeling of being boiled. He wanted bridge. He was again able to endure Virgil Gunch's inexorable hardiness, but he pictured loafing with Paul Reithling beside a lake in Maine. It was as overpowering and imaginative as homesickness. He had never been to Maine, yet he beheld the shrouded mountains of the tranquil lake of evening. "'That boy Paul's worth all these ballahoo and highbrows put together,' he muttered. "'And I'd like to get away from everything.' Even Louetta Swanson did not rouse him. Mrs. Swanson was pretty and plain. Babbitt was not an analyst of women, except as to their taste in furnished houses to rent. He divided them into real ladies, working women, old cranks, and fly chickens. He mooned over their charms, but he was of opinion that all of them, save the women of his own family, were different and mysterious. Yet he had known by instinct that Louetta Swanson could be approached. Her eyes and lips were moist, her face tapered from a broad forehead to a pointed chin, her mouth was thin but strong and avid, and between her brows were two outcurving and passionate wrinkles. She was thirty, perhaps, or younger. Gossip had never touched her but every man naturally and instantly rose to flirtationists when he spoke to her, and every woman watched her with stilled blankness. Between games, sitting on the Davenport, Babbitt spoke to her with the requisite gallantry, that sonorous Floral Heights gallantry, which is not flirtation but a terrified flight from it. "'You're looking like a soda fountain tonight, Louetta.' "'Am I?' "'Old Eddie kind of on the rampage?' "'Yes, I get so sick of it.' Well, when you get tired of hubby, you can run off with Uncle George. If I ran away, oh, well. Anybody ever tell you your hands are awful pretty? She looked down at them. She pulled the lace of her sleeves over them, but otherwise she did not heed him. She was lost in unexpressed imaginings. Babbitt was too languid this evening to pursue his duty of being a captivating, though strictly moral male. He ambled back to the bridge tables. He was not much thrilled when Mrs. Frink, a small twittering woman, proposed that they try to do some spiritualism and table-tipping. You know, Chum can make the spirits come. Honest, he just scares me. The ladies of the party had not emerged all evening. But now is the sex given to things of the spirit, while the men warred against base things material, they took command and cried, Oh, let's! In the dimness the men were rather solemn and foolish, but the good wives quivered and adored as they sat about the table. They laughed. Now you be good, or I'll tell. When the men took their hands in the circle, Babbitt tingled with a slight return of interest in life as Louetta Swanson's hand closed on his with quiet firmness. All of them hunched over intent. They startled as someone drew a strained breath. In the dusty light from the hall they looked unreal. They felt disembodied. Mrs. Gunch squeaked, 
and they jumped with unnatural jocularity, but at Frank's hiss they sank into subdued awe. Suddenly, incredibly, they heard a knocking. They stared at Frank's half-revealed hands and found them lying still. They wiggled and pretended not to be impressed. Frank spoke with gravity. Is someone there? A thud. Is one knock to be the sign for yes? A thud. And two for no? A thud. Now, ladies and gentlemen, shall we ask the guide to put us into communication with the spirit of some great one passed over? Frank mumbled. Mrs. Orville Jones begged. Oh, let's talk to Dante. We studied him at the reading circle. You know who he was, Orby? Certainly I know who he was. The Wap poet. Where do you think I was raised? From her insulted husband. Sure, the fellow that took the cook's tour to hell. I've never waded through his poetry, but we learned him about him at the U, said Babbitt. Page, Mr. Dundee, intoned Eddie Swanson. You ought to get him easy, Mr. Frink. You and he being fellow poets, said Luella Swanson. Fellow poets, rats! Where'd you get that stuff? protested Virgil Gunch. I suppose Dante showed a lot of speed for an old-timer. Not that I've actually read him, of course. But to come right down to hard facts, he wouldn't stand a one-two-three if he had to buckle down to practical literature and turn out a poem for the newspaper syndicate every day like Chum does. That's so, from Eddie Swanson. Those old birds could take their time. Judas Priest, I could write poetry myself if I had a whole year to do it, and just wrote about that old-fashioned junk like Donny wrote about. Frank demanded, Hush now, I'll call him. Oh, laughing eyes emerge forth from the, uh, the ultimate, and bring hither the spirit of Dante, that we mortals may list to his words of wisdom. You forgot to give him the address, 1558 Brimstone Avenue. Fiery Heights, hell. Grinch chuckled, but the others felt that this was irreligious. And besides, probably it was just Chum making the knocks. But still, if there did happen to be something to all this, be exciting to talk to an old fellow belonging to way back in early years. A thud. The spirit of Dante had come to the parlor of George F. Babbitt. He was, it seemed, quite ready to answer the questions. He was glad to be with them this evening. Frank spelled out the messages by running through the alphabet till the spirit interpreter knocked at the right letter. Littlefield asked in a learned tone, "'Do you like it in paradise, monsieur?' "'We are very happy on the higher plane, signor. "'We are glad that you are studying this great truth of spiritualism,' Dante replied. The circle moved with an odd creaking of stays and shirt-fronts. Suppose, suppose, where there were something to this. Babbitt had a different worry. Suppose Chum Frank was really one of those spiritualists Chum had for a literary fellow. Always seemed to be a regular guy. He belonged to the Chatham Road Presbyterian Church, and went to the boosters' lunches, and liked cigars and motors and racy stories. But suppose that secretly, after all, you never could tell about the darn highbrows, and to be an out-and-out -out spiritualist would be almost like being a socialist. No one could long be serious in the presence of Virgil Gunch. Ask Dante how Jack Shakespeare and old Verge. 
the guy they named after me, are getting along, and don't they wish they could get into the movie game? He blared, and instantly all was mirth. Mrs. Jones shrieked, and Eddie Swanson desired to know whether Dante didn't catch cold with nothing on but his wreath. The pleased Dante made humble answer. But Babbitt, the cursed discontent, was torturing him again, and heavily, in the impersonal darkness, he pondered, I don't. We're all so flip and think we're so smart. There'd be a fellow like Dante. I wish I'd read some of his pieces. I don't suppose I ever will now. He had, without explanation, the impression of a slaggy cliff, and on it, in silhouette against menacing clouds, a lone and austere figure. He was dismayed by a sudden contempt for his surest friends. He grasped Loretta Swenson's hand and found the comfort of human warmth. Habit came, a veteran warrior, and he shook himself. What the deuce is the matter with me this evening? He patted Louetta's hand, to indicate that he hadn't meant anything improper by squeezing it, and demanded of Frank, See, see if you can get old Dante to spiel us some of his poetry. Talk up to him. Tell him, When a gonna senor come sava, we gets our little poem, senor. 2. The lights were switched on. The women sat on the front of their chairs in the determined suspense, whereby a wife indicates that as soon as the present speaker was finished, she is going to remark brightly to her husband, Well, dear, I think perhaps it's about time for us to be saying good night. For once Babbitt did not break out in blustering efforts to keep the party going. He had. There was something he wished to think out. But the physical research that started them off again. Why don't they go home? Why didn't they go home? Though he was impressed by the profundity of the statement, he was only half enthusiastic when Howard Littlefield lectured, The United States is the only nation in which the government is a moral ideal and not just a social arrangement. True, true, they weren't ever going home. He was usually delighted to have an inside view of the momentous world of motors, but tonight he scarcely listened to Eddie Swanson's revelation. If you want to go above the javelin class, the Zico is a mighty good buy. A couple of weeks ago, and mind you, this was a fair square test. They took a Zico stock touring car, and they slid up the town Sonata Hill on high, and fellow told me, Zico's good boat, but were they planning to stay all night? They really were going with a flutter of, Ah, oh, we did have the best time. Most aggressively friendly of all was Babbitt. Yet as he burbled, he was reflecting, I got through it, but for a time there, I didn't hardly think I'd last out. He prepared to taste the most delicate pleasure of the host, making fun of his guest in the relaxation of midnight. As the door closed, he yawned voluptuously, chest out, shoulders wiggling, and turned cynically to his wife. She was beaming. Oh, it was nice, wasn't it? I know they enjoyed every minute of it. Don't you think so? He couldn't do it. He couldn't mock. It would have been like sneering at a happy child. He lied ponderously. You bet. Best party this year. By a long shot. Wasn't the dinner good? And honestly, I thought the fried chicken was delicious. You bet. 
fried to the queen's taste best chicken i've tasted in for a coon's age didn't matilda fry it beautifully and don't you think the soup was simply delicious it certainly was it was corking best soup i've tasted since heck was a pup but his voice was seeping away they stood in the hall under the electric light in its square box-like shade of red glass bound with nickel she stared at him why george don't sound you sound as if you hadn't really enjoyed it sure I did course i did george what is it oh i'm kind of tired i guess been pounding pretty hard at the office need to get away and rest up a little well we're going to maine in just a few weeks now dear yeah then he was pouring it out nakedly robbed of that reticence myra i think it'd be a good thing for me to get up there early but you have this man you have to meet in new york about business what man oh sure him oh that's all off but i want to hit maine early get in a little fishing catch me a big trout by golly a nervous artificial laugh well why don't we do it verona and matilda can run the house between them and you and i can go any time if you think we can afford it but that's i've been feeling so jumpy lately i thought maybe it might be good thing if i got kind of off by myself and sweated out me george don't you want me to go along she was too wretchedly in earnest to be tragic or gloriously insulted or anything save dumpy and defenseless and flushed to the red steaminess of a boiled beet course i do i just meant remembering that paul risling had predicted this he was as desperate as she i mean sometimes it's a good thing for an old grouch like me to go off and get it out of his system he tried to sound parental then when you and the kids arrive i figured maybe i might skip up to maine just a few days ahead of you i'd be ready for a real bat see how i mean he coaxed her with large booming sounds with affable smiles like a popular preacher blessing an easter congregation like a humorous lecturer compelling his stint of eloquence like all perpetrators of masculine wiles she stared at him the joy of festival drained from her face do i bother you when we go on vacations do i add anything to your fun he broke suddenly dreadfully he was hysterical he was a yelping baby yes yes hell yes but can't you understand i'm shot to pieces i'm all in i got to take care of myself i tell you, i got to i'm sick of everything and everybody i got to it was she who was mature and protective now why of course you shall run off by yourself why don't you get paul to go along and you boys just fish and have a good time she patted his shoulder reaching up to it while he shook with palsied helplessness and in that moment was not merely by habit fond of her but clung to her strength she cried cheerily now upstairs you go and pop into bed we'll fix it all up i'll see to the doors now skip for many minutes for many hours for a bleak eternity he lay awake shivering reduced to primitive terror comprehending that he had won freedom and wondering what he could do with anything so unknown and so embarrassing as freedom. End of chapter 9